This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hello and welcome to Savor, production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an episode for you about cream of tartar. Yes. Yes, which has been on our list since the very, very <laughs> beginning. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's really scientifically and historically not like complicated, but complex. Like there's a lot, yes. there's a lot of moving pieces in this one. And so, um, so we've been putting it off, but, um, but this is like sort of, <laughs> uh, we were asked to do a holiday episode and, this was the topic that we chose because we were weird nerds. We we were we weren't like, oh man, let's do gingerbread cookies. Although I mean, we have already done gingerbread, so we couldn't. But but at any rate, yeah, like we didn't do something like that. Like we were like, oh, let's talk about cream of tartar. Very important into baking. It baking. is. Um, yeah, and so it this got kickstarted because Super Producer Andrew was like, hey. Have you heard about cream of tartar? Oh yeah 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 that too right right it was this dovetail. Yes. And I was like, yes, huh. been on my list since forever. Because every time I tell somebody what cream of tartar is, that same moment happens where they're like, are you kidding? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no, I would I never joke about wine residue. That's a really useful kitchen chemical. I would never. Um, <laughs> but I, I believe I've told this story several times on the show, but I'll tell it again. I was in college when I realized baking powder and baking soda were not interchangeable. Oh, and different oofda. things. Yeah. Uh-huh. And a good friend of mine who I would say had her life more uh, together than uh-huh. I did uh, told me about, well, you know, cream of tartar, which she told me, and we're going to talk about this, but she told me it was the difference between them as one has cream of tartar and one doesn't. And I was like, what is cream of tartar? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> My whole life is a lie. But it was a very big learning experience for me. So I think one of the first topics I put on our list was oh, baking huh, powder, yeah. baking soda, cream, cream of tartar. tartar. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm. It's something that I was fairly familiar with from a fairly young age because my grandmama Lou um, uh, uh, taught me to, to, to bake uh, when I was growing up. And um, things like snickerdoodles. Uh, Not a lot of baking recipes still call for cream of tartar specifically. Like a lot of the time, um, uh, baking powder is the thing that's used as a leavener. But 
Uh, and and cream of tartar isn't usually involved in baking powder anymore. We're talking more about all of this uh, in, yes. throughout the outline. But um, <laughs> but but yeah. Uh, but in Snickerdoodles specifically, uh, cream of tartar is usually in the ingredients list. And so yeah. So I've kind of always had it in my life, but r- only pretty recently learned about it. I think when we did our muffins episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, This episode is also super fun because of just the breadth of different other episodes we get to refer to in it. Yes. I was trying to phrase it to Lauren earlier, but it's kind of an episode that tells the story of so many other things through its not being there or being there, but being the side character. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, heck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, cream of tartar. Cream of tartar. Well, oh, I guess this brings us to our question. Uh-huh. Cream of tartar. What is it? Well, uh, cream of tartar is a compound that has all kinds of useful properties in cooking because it's basically just a mild acid that comes in a powdered crystal format. Um, It's a white powder found in little canisters in either the spice aisle, sometimes the baking aisle of stores. It shows up in recipes for baked goods and desserts and other things that that incorporate uh, whipped cream or whipped eggs, also in candies and in boiled vegetables and in cleaning products. Um, (laughs) uh, It's like lemon juice or vinegar in powder form, but without other flavors involved. It's like a it's like a food grade multi-tool or or I guess to your point. A minute ago, it's like a it's like a really good character actor that you kind of almost don't notice until you realize that they're so critical. Yes, one thousand percent exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Um, The chemical name is potassium bitartrate. or uh, potassium hydrogen tartrate. So um, so it's the potassium salt form of an acid called tartaric acid, which is a carboxylic acid, which are commonly occurring uh, typically weak acids. And uh, cream of tartar is actually a byproduct of the wine industry. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tartaric acid is a compound that's found in grapes. Um, it's one of the things that makes them tart. When it is partially neutralized, like like on the pH scale, um, it can form up with potassium, uh, which is also found in grapes, to create molecules of potassium bitartrate. And these are pretty soluble in warm water-based solutions, but will crystallize and settle out of the solution at cooler temperatures, like um, like below 20 Celsius or 70 Fahrenheit, um, and especially below like 10 Celsius or 50 Fahrenheit, which, hey, is totally cellar temperature to like cold cellar temperature, all right? Mm-hmm. In the wine mm-hmm. industry, um, these, uh, these, these crystals are sometimes called wine crystals or wine diamonds. Um, you may have noticed them yourself at the bottom of a bottle of wine or um, like in a crunchy little layer on the bottom of the cork when you open it. Yeah, um, they're harmless in wine and, and like not an indicator that anything has gone bad. Some wine experts actually like seeing them because it's a sign that a wine hasn't been like processed too much. Uh, but that's not how it's manufactured. Like no one is like filtering finished bottles of wine or like scraping them off of corks, um, and then sending them into some kind of, that's not, that's not what's going on. Um, 
So when you make wine, um, you uh, let the juice or, or must ferment uh, and sometimes age in a vat or barrel with yeast. Then you separate the liquid wine from the lees, the um, like the the dead yeast and any sediments um, by straining or draining as you bottle it. Usually, um, you can see our champagne episode for more on that. Um, wow, and throwback. <laughs> I know, right? Serious throwback. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you're left with is those lees, some some dead yeast and other sediments, probably including like sort of a bunch of potassium bitartrate um, that can then be washed out and sent off and purified and powdered and sold. Um, the raw stuff that's sent off is sometimes called argol, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't read about why. I didn't look into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but okay, so 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 potassium bitartrate or cream of tartar um, is just incredibly useful because it is mildly acidic and it doesn't have other flavors and it's a dry powder. So y- you don't have water molecules in there like mucking anything up. Um so yeah, let's go. This is like a long list of uses. Um, yes. It's amazing. Uh, okay. One that we've talked about on the show before, and as we alluded to in our intro, um, uh, during our discussion on muffins, um, mm-hmm. is that it is a part of leaveners for baked goods. Uh, leaveners are the stuff that you add to help make baked goods uh, nice and light and fluffy. Generally, these are compounds that will create carbon dioxide bubbles in your dough, giving it a physical lift and expansion. Um, and then the, the heat of your oven sets the dough around those bubbles, nice, light, and airy. Um, the most popular leavener modernly is baking powder, which is made up of baking soda, which is sodium bicarbonate, um, plus some kind of dry form of acid. And when this mixture is subjected to moisture, the two will react with each other to produce carbon dioxide bubbles. Um, Originally, cream of tartar was the acid used in baking powder. These days, it's more likely to be something cheaper, um, but recipes will still sometimes call for um, cream of tartar plus baking soda or maybe for baking powder plus an extra kick of cream of tartar, depending on what people are going for. And that is partially because of cream of tartar's other cool properties. Um, Like, for example, if you are whipping egg whites or cream, um, the acidity of cream of tartar will help the proteins in there unfurl and then stick together softly around the air bubbles that you're whipping in without, without sticking together so hard that they go rigid and then push water out. Uh, you might have had that happen to you when when you're whipping eggs or cream. Um, you know, it, it, it's expanding and peaking up nicely, uh, and then suddenly it breaks and goes lumpy and, and wet. Um, a little bit of cream of tartar can help prevent that. Cream of tartar can also make cakes and meringues look brighter and whiter. Um, because, well, well, A, because uh, the acidity in it will turn a pigment in flour clear instead of sort of parchment colored. Um, and B, because of that whipping thing, um, because you can you can get the air bubbles in a batter or, or in a meringue smaller, um, which means that the particles of cake or meringue around them are going to be smaller, which means that they reflect light just a little differently and it looks brighter. That's so cool. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, but furthermore, um, cream of tartar affects the texture of sugar. Um uh, sugar, meaning sucrose, um, likes being in a crystal state, and it likes clumping up. Um, 
But if you're making like a like a smooth textured candy or a shiny icing or like nice chewy baked goods, you want sugar to be liquid or, or at the very least like not clumpy. Um, mm -hmm. Cream of tartar helps because it breaks sucrose down into glucose and fructose, which do not like crystallizing and clumping up as much. And <laughs> because cream of tartar is lightly acidic, it can help some kinds of colorful produce retain their color when you steam or boil them. Um, basically because uh, in, in certain veg, th those pigments are stored in acidic pockets. Um, so making the whole environment that you're cooking them in more acidic means that they can stay put and they're not trying to, to, to balance out with the rest of the stuff, with the rest of the water or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's great for cleaning um for cleaning uh the blackening off of like aluminum and other metals and for lifting rust um and helping clear drains when when mixed with different stuff uh google the cleaning uses this is ostensibly a food show um and i've i've already talked a lot so yeah yeah <laughs> well you must continue lauren <laughs> we need to know about the nutrition uh you're generally not consuming enough cream of tartar to make a difference. Um, and if you're thinking about doing so, uh, don't, um, because potassium <laughs> is one of the things that like your body needs, but that you also should not have too much of. So mm. yeah. Yeah. Mm. Generally mm. considered safe, but, but don't just eat cream of tartar. That's not what it's for. No, uh, no. I did think it was really interesting in reading this, how many chefs had such strong opinions about why you should be using cream of tartar? Because it has kind of, you know, I, I, we couldn't really find a lot of numbers, but I would say based on these articles I read from chefs, they were they were making the case like this is the ingredient you need to use it. Nobody's using it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a rep for being like a little bit old fashioned. Um, right. Uh, however, okay, so so I don't have firm numbers about it, but all of the like market reports that I didn't spend thousands of dollars on, um, the summaries were were indicating that it's still quite a popular product, um, especially mm -hmm. on an industrial level, and that furthermore, um, its use is growing as the, the the growth of baked goods in places that are not Europe and North America continues. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it was interesting how many things were like, you can't substitute cream of tartar in this. Like snickerdoodles was a big one. It kept yeah. saying, no, this is it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But because um, um, if you've ever had like a really good snickerdoodle, like it's got like a tiny bit of tartness to it. And that's mm. that's what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, we don't really have any numbers other than yeah. <laughs> these kind of vague understandings. But I did see this thing. Cream of tartar was huge in terms of revolutionizing modern baking, which we're going to talk about, but also in our understanding of 3D molecular structures. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there will be more on that in the history section. But first, we are going to get into a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. 
So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And you can see our many wine episodes we've done. Uh Uh-huh. As you said, Lauren, there's also a bunch of other things that this (laughs) one touches on. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I would say wine episodes... Uh, pretty big for sure Uh, yeah uh, the history of this one is a little all over the place um as we also mentioned but here we go we're gonna try so the earliest known evidence of cream of tartar was a residue discovered on seven thousand year old wine barrels located in what is now iran but it's safe to guess that as long as we've been making wine this waste product of winemaking has been around um but yeah, for much of history, cream of tartar was pretty much seen as just that, a waste product, and it was ignored. People weren't writing about it. They weren't studying it. They didn't yeah. care about it. Um, it wasn't until the 14th century that the word tartar appeared in our written record in terms of the wine deposits we're talking about today, deriving from the tartaric and tartaric acid. I've always been, I've always struggled with that pronunciation, but I hope that's right. Uh, <laughs> the cream part in cream of tartar is still a bit of a mystery. Everybody was like, oh. <laughs> the closest thing I read was people think it's because of the color. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, or like it makes things texturally creamy. Yeah. I I don't I don't know. Um, although one more slightly mysterious etymology note here. Um, the crystals harvested from wine barrels or or bottles were at one point known by the noun bees wing. Oh. Because they're so, like, delicate and clear. I love that. Beautiful. Mm. I'm not sure if it was during this time period or later on, but at any rate, bees wing. Bees wing is fantastic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Some evidence suggests that cream of tartar, at least some form of it, was possibly fairly available in medieval Europe. Um, Chaucer may have mentioned cream of tartar in the Canterbury Tales. Uh, Here's the translation of that. Um, Clay made with horse or man's hair and oil, 
of tartar crystallized alum, yeast, unfermented malt, and argol. Mm. Yeah, uh, Chaucer was was writing about some like shady alchemists during this bit. Um, I'm not sure where the 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 tartar and argol came into play in the whole thing. I'm I'm unfamiliar with Chaucer. If anyone is more familiar, I let us know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, a 1766 treatise purported. That tartrates were useful in a whole host of uh, medicinal applications, including gout and including, which there's an illustration you can look upon, uh, in the case (laughs) of a bite of a, quote, prodigious mad cat. Oh, a prodigious Prodigious mad mad cat. cat. I mean, that's prodigious. (laughs) I feel like that's most cats I've ever met, but um... I know. That's like that's like does anyone does anyone else follow Billy the cat uh who has the sound buttons and like and like their owner made one that's that just says mad and like <laughs> and so this cat will sometimes sit there and just mad 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 like <laughs> that's a mood that's a mood right there <laughs> uh, oh great. yes anyway <laughs> anyway uh Cream of tartar was frequently used as a laxative during this time as well. Yeah. Um, when it comes to our modern use of cream of tartar, it is a, a tale of a lot of scientists and chemists and bakers. Um, mm-hmm. One such person was Swedish chemist C.W. Scheele uh, in 1768. Uh, and basically, he combined leftover solids from making wine with hot water to dissolve the potassium bitartrate. Then the water evaporated out and allowed for these crystals or wine diamonds to form. And from there, they were purified, packaged, and sold. Still the basic way that we're doing it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> French physicist Jean-Baptiste Biot nailed down cream of tartar's physical properties in 1832. And then Louis Pasteur. Um, Louis Pasteur grew really interested in winemaking and started studying the compound left behind by winemaking in 1847 and 1848. Yeah, um, as we talked about in our Types of Milk episode, of of all references, uh, he was hired by a wine man- manufacturer and then later Napoleon III to look into why wines sometimes go sour. The answer is bacteria, and it's why we have pasteurization today. But right, so he was studying wine, and um, and, and this goes back to that 3D molecule thing. Um, because, all right, he was studying wine and noticed that lab-created tartaric acid behaves a little bit differently than natural tartaric acid when it crystallizes into salt forms, Um, like it produces differently shaped crystals. And so between this work and a couple other chemists' work around this time, we figured out that molecules are in fact three-dimensional, not not two-dimensional as it was previously kind of assumed. Mm. I'm telling you, it's so cool. You never yeah. know where the research is going to go. Right? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And not long after this, cream of tartar became a popular ingredient in French cooking. And it really, really did change the world of baking. Yeah. Um, as did a lot of innovations in ingredients, processes, and technologies coming out around this time. Because it's like industrial revolution time. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of things were happening. And so, for instance... The 1841 recipe for a common cake featured in the book Early American Cookery read this way. Um, 
The flour should be dried before the fire, sifted and weighed, currants washed and dried, raisins stoned, sugar pounded and rolled fine and sifted, and all spices after being well dried at the fire, pounded and sifted. So it was complicated. Basically, uh, just, just a lot, just a lot of steps and a lot of steps to help mm-hmm. create the fine texture and to allow the ingredients to have some lift without the chemical leaveners that we're used to today. Right. And that's something we've talked about several times on this show when it comes to early desserts or our breads or grain based products in general. They were often dry or crumbly or hard and not what we would think of today when you think of a cake, for instance. Um, yeah. And so if you wanted something lighter and fluffier, you had to really plan ahead. And put some serious elbow grease into it, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. just 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 really, really whip, physically whip air into eggs or into cream or whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so bakers were really determined to speed this process along, to make it easier. And by the 18th century, bakers were already looking for simpler ways to get the rising effect they wanted much more quickly. Uh, and yeah, they were beating air into eggs. They were using pearl ash or potash, which we've discussed before. Um, however, pearl ash was tricky, caustic, didn't have the best odor always. Yeah, or, or never, because um, because <laughs> as as part of the process, it also it, it does it will um, create carbon dioxide bubbles, but it also uh, gives off ammonia. Um, it, it's 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 actually smelling salts is what pearl ash is. So. Um, <laughs> So, so right. So, so ammonia is not generally what people are going for as a flavor agent in their desserts. And so, right. Not, not, not ideal. No, 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 no. Um, The game changed in this whole baking arena (laughs) when baking soda was introduced in 1846. And it definitely improved things, but still it wasn't the most controllable process because it required adding in an acid, uh, most often the cheap and easily accessible sour milk. But this wasn't the most predictable combination, primarily because the acidity level of the milk varied Mm -hmm. um, and it impacted amounts that should be put in, uh, cooking times, things like that, in ways that were very, very hard to determine. Yeah. Um, Also, in the 1840s, We got the first precursor to baking powder, courtesy of English chemist Alfred Byrd. So to make this product, Byrd combined baking soda with cream of tartar, which again, yes, is an acidic powder, essentially, so so that the process could be more controlled. However, there was still a problem. At the time, cream of tartar was largely the byproduct of European wine and further dependent on the grape harvest, meaning that outside of Europe... It had to be imported and was pretty expensive and out of reach for folks like poor Americans, for Mm -hmm. instance. But again, a chemist saw this problem and sought to fix it. In 1856, even Norton Horsford, who I hope I didn't butcher it, um, filed Mm. a patent for the first modern baking powder and later went on to open the first modern U.S. chemistry lab at Harvard. Um, Yeah. He did this all in part after falling in love with a student of his. Being told he needed to get better prospects by her father and traveling to Germany to study chemistry. Wow. Um, Yeah, that's the story anyway. A lot of back and forth regarding baking powder followed, sometimes called the baking powder wars, but that is a future episode. Oh, yeah. Uh Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, Horsford's baking powder replaced the cream of tartar with calcium acid phosphate. He filed for a patent that year for the process of manufacturing it. So 
even if cream of tartar wasn't involved, it was still a key force in shaping the baking landscape. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And another key force, there's actually a whole book about this that I really want to read, uh, American women who saw cake as an avenue for experimentation that wasn't necessarily obligation, but of pleasure. Like, how can I make this lighter, fluffier, tastier? Oh, yeah, more special. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 1893 marks the first time cream of tartar was advertised as an egg white stabilizer as opposed to a baking powder type substance or substitute, uh, which is interesting. Hmm. Tartaris Gonzalo Castello, which is a company located in Spain that now processes about 40% of the world's cream of tartar, got started in 1907. A 1961 New York Times article offered tips for the perfect meringue, one of which was using cream of tartar. And yeah, while modern day baking powders don't often rely on cream of tartar anymore, the legacy is still there. I guess, like, I keep trying to make this point, but it's like the fingerprint of cream of tartar is everywhere. Yeah. Um, And it's still beloved by many chefs and cooks and a lot of recipes. So, uh, yeah, still going cream of tartar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Huh. And I, yeah, I, I didn't know a lot of this before we did this reading and it's so cool. I'm like, oh man. It is so cool. I feel, and I feel like a little bit, I'm like, I'm like, um, par- pardon me, everyone who's ever taught me a, a recipe. Like, why did you not mention that I could avoid collapsing my heckin' eggs mm-hmm. <laughs> by putting a little cream tartar in there? Oh, you know? You you are doing that for for hopefully some listeners right oh, now, Lauren. You're well, sharing you the go. knowledge, and I would love to hear from listeners. Like, what recipes do you use cream of tartar? Oh in? yeah, yeah. What what are like the ones that you busted out for? You're like, this is the important one. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Yes, because um, mm-hmm. it is big during holiday baking time. I think every recipe I have for cream of tartar is a holiday baking type recipe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well. Send those messages in. But for now, I think that's what we have to say about cream of tartar. It is. Uh, We do have some listener mail for you, though, and we're going to get into that as soon as we get back from one more quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, 
a military-trained seduction spy, reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with Listener, Listener. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like bubbles and holiday like lights. I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> did want to mention we are working on a listener mail episode. Um, yeah. So if you've been holding off for some reason, um, but you but you really want you really want to. Mm-hmm. This is the this is the time. It's the time. It is, and when we have some exciting messages to share and uh, gifts that we have received that I can't wait to talk about. Yes. 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 Okay. Ooh, yes. All yes. Right. But in the meantime, let's talk about hot chocolate. Um, <laughs> Kelly wrote, I was listening to the hot chocolate episode and had to pass along a recommendation. Stella Parks has a fantastic recipe for hot cocoa mix on Serious Eats. It uses malt powder, a mix of chocolate and quote, toasted sugar, one of her signature ingredients to make a delicious homemade cocoa mix. You can add a little mint extract, too, if that's your thing. And it makes a great homemade gift. You can wrap it up in jars, bags, packets, etc., and decorate it however you like. I hope you get a chance to try it out, even if you make it mostly to give away and just try a small sample. <laughs> oh, that's yes. so cool. Goodness. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever used a malt powder, speaking of a future episode. Right? Oh, and I, I, love, I love a malt powder. Um, okay. It's like my favorite milkshake flavor. Okay. Um, so, yeah, 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 totally. Um, oh, oh, and Serious Eats always does great stuff. They, they, the, the writers and editors over there are just doing a bang up job. Um, mm-hmm. But continuing with the hot chocolate advice, Stephanie wrote, I just listened to the hot chocolate episode and I had to share my favorite hot chocolate topping. Real marshmallows are great. Dehydrated mini marshmallows are great. Whipped cream is great. But none of them hold a candle to a scoop of marshmallow fluff. As a New England girl, I do have a general affinity for fluff, but even if you don't like it on a sandwich, you gotta try it on hot chocolate. It melts into this gorgeous, shiny white pool that covers the whole top of your mug, so you get some in every sip. I can't recommend it enough. Wow. This is one of those things, when I read it, I was like, how have I never thought of this? Right? (laughs) So simple, but so cool. Oh, and I do love marshmallow fluff. I The first day that I had like a fluffer nutter sandwich, I was like, people can do this. This is within the realm of possibility. Like I was like, what have I been missing my entire life? Um, Mm. Mm -hmm. And it it just makes sense. like, Right? Because a lot of times you put marshmallows, and especially kind of the cheaper kind of marshmallows, they don't really melt evenly it's like they're suddenly they're there and then suddenly it's all gone but if you had marshmallow fluff i feel like the consistency right would would be better i yeah. think that the yeah and the it would be more even every sip as you say right. it makes sense it makes sense <sighs> it's so perfect <laughs> i feel like i found this is like i've i've uncovered a deep mathematic formula like that's what i feel like has happened here <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah 
Oh. Everything makes sense now. It okay. does. It does. Yes. Well, thank you for illuminating yes. us, listeners. <laughs> Thanks for writing in. And if you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saberpod.com. And we're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at saberpod. And we do hope to hear from you. Saber is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening. And we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is home to a thriving culinary scene based on products and traditions from the native Taino, African, and Spanish peoples that have influenced it. When you go, there are a host of restaurants, bars, breweries, distilleries, farms, and coffee houses to dig into, from five-star experiences to local favorites. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.